the New Testament to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In our last study in Philippians, Paul had wrapped up the closing verses of 10 and 11 in chapter 3 uh, with his declaration of what was really important to him in life. I think that life is a journey to teach us what's important and what's not. It separates the wheat from the chaff. You don't learn the, all of those lessons until you walk through death's door. But understand this, that God is in the process of making you more like him with every passing day. That means more of you needs to die and more of him needs to fill you to the uttermost so that you and I begin looking more like him, talking more like him, thinking more like him. Paul was obsessed, obsessed with one thing. He didn't have any hobbies. He didn't do anything for entertainment. He, didn't, he wasn't attached at the hip to his cell phone, didn't watch TV, didn't go to the movies for entertainment. Well, what did he do for fun? Jesus Christ, he was so full of Jesus Christ, that's all he could have room for. He was a man who was obsessed because he was a man who was possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. He was possessed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's why we offered the invitation this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, we would love to introduce you to him. You say, well, how can you have a relationship with a dead guy? You didn't read that part of the chapter. He's risen. That's called Easter. We celebrate that annually so the church doesn't forget who died so that we might live. Today, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw him alive after he rose from the dead. The stone had been, stone had been rolled away. Angels were in attendance. The lady saw it first. It was confirmed to the disciples. 500 eyewitnesses after that. Jesus is alive. Now, the only question is, is he your Lord and Savior or not? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Because you can't be saved by accepting historical fact. A pagan can look at the facts regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, well, you know, it looks like he probably rose from the dead. That's an acknowledgement of their facts, but does not lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until you personalize it, until you internalize it. It's the kind of the difference between knowing that George Washington crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Day in 1776 to invade the Hessian camp. It's different to know that historical facts. But do you know George Washington? I mean, I don't think any of you are old enough to have met the guy personally. You know about him, you don't know him. You may know about Jesus Christ, but until you ask him into your heart, until you confess your sins, until you seek his face, and ask him to forgive and wash away all of your sins. You don't have a relationship. You've got a head knowledge. Head knowledge doesn't save. Intellectual knowledge is more than, is, is not re what's required to get you into heaven. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life that is submitted to him. And there's fruit to be seen. Jesus said you can tell a tree by its fruit. I'm always interested when great people of the Bible tell us what is the most important thing in their life because it challenges me. What's the most important thing in my life? What occupies the majority of my time? Is it stuff? Is it material possessions? Is it the endless pursuit of entertainment? Is it the next great Galaxy S58 that's coming out or whatever number they're up to today? 
It'll be greater in six months. Just wait. If technology is your God, your God changes all the time, and you can't keep up. My God's like a rock that never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's hope upon which I can hang my hat. Everything else in life is temporary. Have you noticed that? Stuff comes and goes. You can't put your trust in that. I encourage you, think through what's really important to you. Paul had talked about his past. He said that he had no confidence in the flesh. He's, he's under house arrest in Rome and yet never throws a pity party. In fact, the whole theme of the letter is rejoicing. Why? Because he's got something in here that nobody around him had. He had a strength. He had a knowledge. He had a relationship. He was praying to a God who whose hand was moved by the prayers of his children. That's why we do what we do here this morning. Prayer moves the hand of God. He's just waiting for you and I to ask him to do something, believing that he can do something, and then he will do something. I read so many times in the New Testament that he said, your faith has healed you. And he said that many times on many occasions. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Is your hope built upon that solid rock? You see, to have faith and to believe in the Greek are exactly the same word. One's in the verb form and one's a noun form, but they're one and the same. Do you believe? Do you believe more than the historical fact? Do you have faith in the living Son of God? Ah, that's what thrills me. But as I look at, I'm looking for role models as much as anybody else, and I don't find them in the sports world. I don't care if they can dribble the ball and throw and run at the same time. I don't care. I dribble. It has nothing to do with basketball. The things that man is impressed with, God is not. Can I tell you that? He doesn't care how many millions are paid our quarterbacks or what baseball team's going to take the world. These things are not on God's radar. He wants the souls of men. He cares about the people that he has created. He doesn't care about the entertainments that take away, us away and distract us from worship. He doesn't care about those things. He cares about you. He cares about you. He wants to hear from you. He loves you so very much. But one of the great heroes of faith that I've latched onto is the guy who wrote this letter that you hold in your hands. It's an epistle, a fancy word for letter, but he's simply writing to the Philippian church in Greece saying, thank you for your love, your grace, your support, your prayers. But then he, he, he just shares his heart with these people like any good pastor would. And he says in 310, I've got a one-track mind, and this is what preoccupies every moment of my every day. I want to know Christ. Look at verse 10 of Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. Experience Him, not just head knowledge. It goes far beyond that. I want to know Him better and better with every passing day and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. That's the way I learned to deny my flesh and walk in the Spirit. Sufferings help us attain that. Becoming like him in his death. Have I died to the things of the world? Are they too important to me? I'm consumed with the latest Xbox game or whatever nonsense is out there. Is there ever an end to the making of movies? 
No. Why? Satan wants to keep you off balance. He wants to keep you distracted. And so we're always talking about sports. We're always talking about weather. We're always talking about movies. And none of these things even hit God's radar. They serve as distraction in a sinful, fallen world preoccupied with selfish indulgence. What preoccupies your life? What occupies your, the centrality in your thought life? What do you obsess about? What's really important to you? I could look at your bank account and tell you what you spend your most amount of your time and money on. That's what's really important to you. But Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's why Paul is my personal hero. I want the same things that he was pursuing. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know that fellowship of walking in his footsteps. And if, if sufferings are included, then I can learn from those things that I suffer. And I will become like him in my death. I, I will be conformed. That's what the literal Greek says. I will be conformed to his death. The problem is a lot of us aren't dead to this world. You're obsessed with this world, but not Christ. You're entertained by this world. We can watch a three-hour movie, but it's too long to sit in church for an hour. We can read a 900-page Tom Clancy novel, but it's too much for us to read three pages out of the Word of God. And we think that somehow or another everything is okay. That's fine, right? No, it's not. It tells us that our priorities have been misplaced. The theme is rejoicing. It's only found in God. I want to know Christ, transcending simple head knowledge of those facts. His one life goal, the one thing that drove him was to experience more and more of Christ and be more and more conformed to his image. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else. Think about this. Everything in your life either draws you nearer to Jesus Christ or further. All you've got to do to have your personal relationship with Jesus dry up is what? Nothing. Don't read. Don't pray. Don't go to church. Don't share your faith. Don't fellowship. And sooner or later, you'll find your spiritual life resembling more like the Mojave Desert than an abundant, fruitful life that Jesus planned for you and I. I want to become like him in his death. That's worded in such a way in the original language that says the God is at work in my life. It's a passive thing, becoming like him in his death, which means I must decrease and he must increase. Is that what's going on in your life or is it the opposite? Are you increasing and him decreasing? You can't chase after the world and chase after Christ simultaneously. Jesus said you can love the one and hate the other or vice versa. But choose you this day whom you will serve. It's a continuous and ongoing work becoming like him in his death. And it's a work that God is doing in us as we abide in him. So our, our prayer is simply this, make me like you, Lord. Make me like you. I don't want to get in the way of that process. 
Paul goes on after telling us the one most important thing in his life, and I just want you to take notes on verses 10 and 11. Is that what is most important to you? Is that what you're pursuing? Is that what occupies the bulk of your time and energy? He said, well, you, you have no idea how busy I am. I've, I've got like 16 kids, and, the, and every one of them is on steroids and caffeine, and I, I don't have time for, for this sort of stuff. You're going to walk into eternity and say, I didn't have enough time for God? Are you serious? Does it sound as shallow to you as it does coming out of my mouth to me? I don't have time for God? Make time. You'll always make time for the things that are most important. Paul says in verse 12, it's not that I've already obtained all of this. I've I'm, I'm not already been made perfect. But don't worry about the word perfect. Don't let that scare you. In verse 12, it means blameless. It means holy. It means devoted to Him. It means that there's a character inside of me that's working its way out. It doesn't refer to sinless perfection. It refers to Christian maturity. I'm pursuing that maturity. I want to grow. I want to learn. Aren't you amazed as I am that every time I open up the book, I may have gone through a particular passage a hundred times, and yet it says something new to you, something stands out in the text that you never saw before. I'm amazed. I sometimes feel like a little kid opening Christmas presents in my daily quiet time. I go, whoa, I, I didn't see that emphasis before, but I, I didn't see that, and I've read this thing my whole life. I've preached it my whole life, I've studied it my whole life, and yet it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword because it's a living relationship we have with Him who declared Himself to be the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's not talking about sinless perfection here. He's talking about being mature, whole, complete, and that is how the word perfect is often interpreted in the New Testament. And now we'll be made totally perfect when Jesus comes back. Hallelujah. Pray, Lord Jesus, come soon. Come soon. If you're after 50, enough aches and pains remind you of how earnestly you should be praying for that. A new body is on order. You don't get it through Amazon. <laughs> they may promise overnight delivery. I wish Jesus would come back overnight. But I got a new body on order that Amazon couldn't hope to deliver. New body with no aches and pains or torn ligaments or scars or issues or a thousand other things that assail the weakness of our flesh. Paul said this in writing another church in Greece, the Corinthians in chapter 13, starting in the second half of verse 8. He said, you know, can I just tell you, share this with you, where there are prophecies, someday they will cease. Where there are tongues speaking in unknown languages, they will be stilled. In other words, Paul just said that tongues was for his day and age after Jesus rose back into heaven. Are tongues still available for the church today? Of course they are. Do I believe that any of the spiritual gifts stopped? No, because the spiritual gift list in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 says they're going to be necessary until that which is perfect comes. If you haven't noticed, he hasn't come yet. In other words, the church still needs those spiritual gifts. How many of them? All of them. You say, well, I don't possess all of them. That's why we need each other. That makes us interdependent. That's very different than codependent. Don't try to do that on me. 
But to be interdependent makes us rely on each other's spiritual gifts, doesn't it? That's a glorious thing. That's a wonderful thing. That binds us together in love, in unity. And it also keeps us humble. Nobody has all of the spiritual gifts. But we all have need of all of the spiritual gifts. So the only way we acquire them is through interaction with other brothers and sisters. So fellowship in a, in a body of believers is essential. Please practice that. Pursue that. Look around a room. If there's somebody you don't know, introduce yourself to them. Get to know them. Attend a small home fellowship or the men's group or the ladies' group. There's a, we provide so many opportunities for you, you to grow in fellowship. Paul says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part now. We prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Only when Jesus comes will the need of the spiritual gifts be gone. We'll be whole, we'll be complete, we will be perfect. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Have you? Have you put childish ways behind you? It's, di- it's going to be different for each one of us. But I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to step on toes but you need to hear me clearly. Stop thinking like a child and clinging to childish ways. The things that are of no spiritual or eternal importance, you got to let those things go. If they don't help you in your Christian walk, they should be discarded. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, TV, movies, hobbies, 10,000 other things. Prioritize your life. Doesn't it just make good sense? prioritize your life. You should devote your time and energy to the things that are most important and of eternal worth. Now we see, Paul says in continuing in verse 12, a poor reflection as in a mirror, one of those bronze mirrors that weren't too good in the first century. But someday we're going to see him face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Now these three things remain and they will As long as the church is on earth, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith will have been done away with. We don't need faith when we can see what is before us. Our faith will have been realized. Our hope will have been realized. But love will endure into all eternity. It's the one thing that should characterize the Christian's life today, love, not knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies, is what Scripture says. But Paul says, verse 12, going back to Philippians 3, I have not already obtained this, haven't been made perfect, but here's what I do. I press on. I continuously continue pressing on. Notice what it says. He says, I press on. There's a part of your work of salvation that God has already done for you, and His name is Jesus, okay? There is a part in this process called sanctification or growing and maturing in Jesus Christ that's on your plate. This is your responsibility. Paul said, I press on. He doesn't say, well, if God wants me to press on, He's going to do it in me. Paul says, this is something I put my mind to in light of what Christ has done. He has saved me. 
Now, I, with all of my energy, will pursue Him, His perfect will for my life. But I must do this. I can promise you this. I will never come at your house at 5 o'clock in the morning, knock on your door and say, are you reading your Bible yet? Slacker, get out of bed. I'm your alarm clock. I'm your Holy Spirit. No, but I would like you to get up and have some quiet time with the Lord before you run off to your busy day. I won't make you do it. God can, but he won't. He's looking for you to take a little personal responsibility for your spiritual life. How close to the Lord are you today, and whose fault do you think it is to blame? He's done his part. He loves you so much, but he's waiting for you to move, to seek his face. I want to know Christ, Paul had said. That should be what captivates us. And Paul says, I, I, I know him, but I want to know him better. So I press on. I continuously continue to pursue him this, in this continuous and ongoing activity. I must do some pursuing. Paul has made great progress in Christ's likeness, to be sure. But the goal was still before him. It wasn't behind him. Now, that is important. Look at what Paul says next there in verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Why did Jesus Christ take hold of Paul? Why does Jesus Christ take hold of you? He loves you. He takes hold of you so that he can reveal his perfect will for your life. Not somebody else's. He wants to show you his perfect will for your life. And if you don't seek it, if you don't pursue it, you'll never find it. You don't want to show yourself at death's door going, well, I've tried 50 million different things in life and none of them really panned out, so... You should have started the journey seeking the Lord. He has a path already marked out for you. You just missed it because you didn't ask him at a thousand whys in the road, which direction should I go? Which opportunity should I take? Which job? Which relationship? Inquire. We have not sometimes because we ask not. I just want you to take real serious note of this. Why did Jesus Christ lay hold of your life so he could reveal his perfect will to you? That's it, in a nutshell. The reason Jesus latched on to you is so that he could show you his perfect will for your life. There is also something called the permissive will of God, which means that he will let you get away with stupid if you insist. Have you noticed that? I, that's about as blunt as I can put it. If you don't, you don't, you don't have to go for God's perfect will. You can settle for second best, but why would you? If you could drive a brand new Cadillac or a 30-year-old Yugo, which would you choose if you had a brain in your head? It should be the perfect will of God, not the permissive will of God. Have you noticed that most of the trouble that we've gotten into in life was due to our own making? Oh, I wish I'd have prayed about that before I made that purchase. Buyer's remorse. What is God's perfect will for you? It starts with salvation. It starts with repenting of your sins, letting Jesus Christ 
Wash away the guilt, the shame of your past. We all have a past. Let him deal with that. I know that psychology and psychiatry has sought to answer the questions of guilt, a guilty conscience, uh, with varying degrees of success, but I think nobody's better at cleansing a guilty conscience than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that none should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9, Ezekiel 18, and in chapter 33. Part of his will, his perfect will, is that we mature in Christ-likeness, that we grow as we read, as we pray, as we fellowship, as we commune, as we worship. There's growth that takes place. That is part of God's perfect will for you. You say, well, I'm not much into praise and worship music. You're going to hate heaven. Why on earth would you want to go there? They sing God's praise there. You say, well, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Never stopped me. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I think that's intentionally worded that way in Scripture. We don't all have a, a voice of some magnificent caliber. That's fine. Use the voice you got. If God wanted to hear a different voice out of your mouth, he'd have given you one. Apparently, he likes hearing what comes out of yours. Go figure. But I want to use it for his glory, so I press on. I haven't been made perfect already, but I know I will press on towards his perfect will for me and not settle for second best. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. I like that one. Anytime in Scripture, somebody like Paul says, I devote myself to one thing. You want to take note of what that one thing is. If it was that important to him, it should be equally important to you and I. This one thing, Paul says, I do. Of the 10 trillion things on earth that you could do, Paul says, I devote myself to do this one thing. Nobody is making it to heaven, and in the first five minutes, they're saying, I wish I'd have watched more TV. Wish I'd have bet more on professional sports. Should have really pursued my basketball career. Nobody says that. Their first few moments in heaven, nobody says that. Nobody cares about cell phone updates up there. Nobody is, uh, they don't, the stuff that the world considers so important today, we don't. Paul's saying in verse 13, I'm, I'm not there yet, but this one thing I do. When Paul says he devotes himself to one thing, takes special note, and then devote yourself to that same one thing. Notice who is doing the one thing in verse 13. Notice carefully. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing who does? I do. This requires some intentionality on your part. This is something that is entirely up to you. Paul says, I am doing this one thing, and only I can do it. Only I can rearrange my priorities to align with God's. So what's your one thing? What's your one thing? Is it tied to the things of this world? Or is it tied to Jesus Christ? There is so much obsession with the things of this world. We're so enamored with the things of this world, and I don't want these things to distract me from the one thing that's really important. 
Paul says one thing, but then he says there's two aspects to that. First of all, forgetting what is behind. And that's, that's a participle. He says, I got to continuously forget the past because it continuously rears its ugly head. I'm reminded of my own sin. I'm reminded of my own guilt, my shame, but I also tend to dwell on past successes. I tend to live in the past, and we, we even call them the good old days, don't we? God will help me. It's worded in such a way that this forgetting process makes me a co-participant in the action. God will do his part. I must do mine, and I must keep on doing it. Some people are still tied to a dysfunctional past. You need to stop that right here and now, a dysfunctional past. And who, by the way, did not have a dysfunctional past? Is there anyone in this room, is there anyone on this planet who had a perfect past. Uh-huh. That's what I thought. So why do we dwell on the past when we're forbidden to do so in Scripture? Because we listen to a sinful voice in our ear that sounds like Satan. And he reminds us of our past and our guilt and our shame. Not all thoughts that pass between your two ears are yours. Sometimes they are planted there by Satan himself. You don't always understand the difference between your voice and God's voice and Satan's voice. And you go, well, who's saying that? Let me make this easy for you. Because they all come through the same subconscious. You need to discern which of those lines up with the Word of God. That's the voice of God. You say, well, I'm not sure I know the Word of God that well. Well, what do you think you should do, Bronco? Maybe you should start reading it more, asking more questions, get a study Bible, get to it. But don't allow Satan to hamstring you with a dysfunctional past. Because if you dwell on that, it'll define your present, and it shouldn't. It'll color your future, and it shouldn't. But if you understand that Jesus Christ died to wash away all of my sins, that's the past behind me. I can look forward to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus. So I'm not dysfunctional now like I used to be. I'm not yet perfect, Paul says, but I'm making some magnificent progress. And that's what I want to pursue. People that are tied to a dysfunctional past can't appreciate their glorious future because they've neglected to do this one thing. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think doctors or lawyers or psychiatrists or psychologists have your answer. Of all of the AMA board-certified specialties in the medical community today, the number one suicide rate is amongst AMA board-certified psychiatrists. They don't have the answer. Don't go barking up the wrong tree looking to find answers to your dysfunctional past. Jesus died to set you free from your past. That is, your past may have been who you were. It is not who you are, and it is certainly not who you are going to be. We've got to cement that kind of thinking in our hearts. All of my answers are found in Christ Jesus. I will look to him. Paul said this one thing, forgetting, forgetting about it. 
putting it behind you. Don't let it define you. I'm forgetting the past, but I'm also the second-pronged aspect of this. In verse 13, I'm straining towards what is ahead. Again, it's a participle. I keep this forward look going in my head, in my heart, in my mind to reach forth. Again, it's an action I must continually do. Future think. Don't dwell on the past. Look forward to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus. His coming kingdom, glorified body is with Him for eternity, a thousand year reign on this earth. Oh, it's going to be so, the best part of our salvation lies ahead. You ain't seen nothing yet. I love that. And God will help me do this straining to reach what is ahead. He will help me. I'm a co-participant in the action. What's ahead? It's Jesus. It's His kingdom. It's eternity. I'll have all the time in the, in the world, all the time in eternity. We're so hassled today, so much under the tyranny of the urgent. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. It's like you and I are running a race. The starter's gun has gone off. The starting line is behind us. I've never seen a runner yet keep looking back to where he started. That would be counterproductive, would you agree? Any of you ever run track in high school or college? Yeah, me too. I never look back at the start line. What's a runner look forward to? Josh, help me out here. What's a runner look forward to? The finish line. Can I tell you, it's nearer now than when we first believed. Don't look back. Now, if your coach was anything like my Josh, and by the grace of God, I hope he wasn't. My coach said, if you look to the left or you look to the right, I will literally kick you in the seat of the pants when you cross the finish line. And he met it. He did it often. It's kind of a bizarre way, but in Wolferth, Texas, they do things that way. A little cotton town about as big as my pinky nail. Uh, different kind of uh, environment there. He didn't want us looking to the left or the right because that would discourage us and we'd hold back. Yeah, he, coach would remind me often, Jim, the only guy you run against is Jim. Nobody can distract you from your personal best. I was a pagan coach that told me that, but the spiritual analogy is strong. Nobody can disqualify me. I stay in my race lane. You may have a race lane to the left or the right of me. It doesn't matter. You keep running your race with patience and perseverance, not looking behind you, not looking to the left or the right. Well, I wonder how he's doing. Or Peter asking Jesus, well, what about John? And Jesus said, if I, that's none of your business. If I want him to remain until I come back, that's none of your business. In other words, you got a race lane. Keep your eyes on the prize. Finish line is in view, certainly nearer now than when we first believed. But only, only I can hold myself back. I don't want to do this. I want to press on and continuously pressing on, pursuing. In other words, giving it everything you got. Pursue Christ. What's the prize? Well, in Paul's day and age, when the, an Olympic runner would finish well, uh, the reigning king would put a little plated wreath around his head that would soon fade. It wasn't the crown that would last, but the crown we have if we run our spiritual race 
as diligently as Paul advocates here, we win not just a plate of wreath, but a crown that will never pass away. Theirs was temporary. Ours, ah, our inheritance will never fade, never perish. So, so what's the goal of life, Pastor Jim? Write this down. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Huh? Some time ago, Newsweek magazine reported on what's called a new wave of mountain climbers that are in America today. It's estimated by them that there were some 60,000 serious mountain climbers in the United States, but in the very highest and upper echelons of serious rock climbers in the world is a small group of men known in their circle as the hard men. For them, climbing mountains and scaling sheer rock faces, was a, it's a way of life. It is their life. In many cases, commitment to, to climbing, it was everything to them, and there was nothing else. And they spent 24-7 thinking about it and planning towards it and exercising for those events. Their ultimate experience is something they called free soloing, climbing with no equipment and no safety ropes. I have an overhead I'd like to share here, if we can dim the house lights. There was a man by the name of John Backer, who was considered by many to be the very best of the hard men. That's a thousand foot fall behind him and he has no ropes. And there he's climbing a reverse cliff where one slip means instant death. This is not a godly man, but it is a man who is consumed with a passion for climbing. Ever upward, ever upward. He had free soloed some of the most difficult rock face in the United States with no safety ropes, no climbing. He could stick his hands and fingers as strong as they were in crevices you and I couldn't even begin to imagine and do it with complete confidence a thousand feet off the ground. His skill did not come easily. It had been acquired through commitment, <clears throat> dedication, and training. His wife said that she couldn't believe his level of dedication. When John wasn't climbing, he was in fact found in his California home hanging by his fingertips to strengthen his arms <clears throat> and hands. In fact, at his peak, uh, Bacher was able to perform a two-finger pull-up with 12 and a half pounds of weight in his other hand and do two-arm pull-ups with over 100 pounds of weight strapped around his waist all day long. You go, really? When he died in 2009, his successor was a young man named Alex Honnold. He does some truly incredible things. Could you give me that previous picture? Yeah, try that. He's not hanging on by anything but his fingertips, but his are stronger than probably every fingertip in this room put together because he trained that way. He was serious because he knew the consequences of not being serious meant his death. There's no ropes. There's no nets beneath him, only a 1,000 feet of solid rock. Keep going to the next one. Oh, boy. You afraid of heights? This this will up your pucker factor, won't it? What's he hanging on to? Absolutely nothing. 
Did these things bother him? They exhilarated him. Look how far it is down to the floor behind him. No ropes, just the strength of his hands and his feet and his legs. Next one. You just stick your hand in the rock, hope a rattlesnake doesn't bite you, and keep climbing. Next, next one. Is that it? The only thing you take with him is chalk put on his hands. That's dedication. Where are the hard men and hard women for Jesus Christ? Their obsession was rock climbing. Are you as dedicated to Jesus Christ as Alex Honnold is to rock climbing? And which do you think pays more eternal rewards? I'm amazed at the things that men will obsess with. And I'm equally amazed at the things that Christians obsess with. We're living in the last days, dearest friends. Where are the hard men and hard women for Jesus? Those who will bring all of their energies to bear for the sake of Christ. Those that can honestly say, for me to live is Christ. And nothing else fits that blank. For me to live is Christ and Christ alone. Men live and die for rock climbing, but where are those willing to live and die for Christ? That's the kind of people I think it's going to take if we're going to be planet changers these last days. If you're going to change the environment, it's your work. It's up to you. How hard are you training? How hard are you praying? How hard are you reading? Paul wraps up this section, and we will close next week with this chapter. Verse 15, he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make it clear to you. Only let's live up to what we've already attained. You know what you should do. It is simply now a matter of doing it, making it priority in our lives. If Jesus isn't priority one above all else, I, uh, then what is? Could I, would I do better spiritually if I would just lessen the distractions around me. For some of you, it may be as simple as turning off your TV or your computer or, hold your hat, turning off your cell phone. Oh, my God, is life possible without a cell phone? I threw mine away three years ago. And it's been the most liberating three years of my life. You want to get hold of me bad enough? I live just up the hill on Babcock. Okay, phone number, you can call the church. We'll, we'll get in touch with you just right away. I just don't want to be distracted. My computer still distracts me a lot, but because I use it to put together my, my teachings and, and the rest of that, it's all the stuff that doesn't have direct bearing on my teaching that tends to distract me. And my sweet wife is so good to remind me. Honey, have you had your quiet time yet? I was getting to I was just getting to it. <laughs> Four hours later, have you had a chance to get your quiet time yet? A little accountability amongst husbands and wives is in order. Don't nag, you can't nag them into the kingdom of God, but you can ask them quiet little loving questions like that. Or take care of the distractions so that they can spend some time in God's Word and seeking His face. 
I don't want you to read God's Word for the sake of memorization. I want you to read God's Word to get to know the author better. Make it personal. It's not just words on a page. It's something that's transformational and life-changing if you will let it be. It's all up to you. Well, what is the best version, Pastor Jim, for me to be reading? The one that you will read. I don't care what version it is. You like one over another, great. God bless you. A couple of you should stay away from, like, cult versions. You should kind of stay away from that. Don't bother reading the Quran. I have. It's a waste of time. He never claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus did, so I'll stick with his Bible instead. A few things are pretty basic like that. And so much of it's up to me. Jesus has done his part, hasn't he? He's gone to the cross. He's raised from the dead. He is risen. He is coming back. Will you be ready? Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Praise band, come on up. Yes, Dave, you too. That's fine. What? <laughs> Lord of heaven and earth, you're a good God. I love you so much, and I'm so thankful that you first loved me. Apart from you, Lord, I can do nothing. I understand you want to be Lord of all, every decision. Everything that crosses my mind. You want me to be so filled with the fruit of your Holy Spirit that what is evident on the outside is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I, I want these things in my life so much. It puts me close to you. And when I'm close, I can hear that still, small voice. We, like young Samuel in the temple, now say, Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. We have heard your word. We make our commitment now to put it into practice. We will praise you. We will seek your face. We will keep on forgetting what is behind, and we will keep on straining towards what is yet ahead. How we need you, Lord. Would you bless us this morning, Father? with your presence, your power. We want to know you more. In Jesus' name.